All right, good morning and welcome. This is the second of four lectures in one workshop offered by the Boone Center for the Family here at Pepperdine. If you're not aware, the Boone Center for the Family is a relationship training and resource center, and all of our relationship education programming integrates theology and the best of psychology. We serve Pepperdine campus and the church locally and nationally. I'm very excited to introduce to you <laughs> Dr. Dee Dee Meyer. Dee Dee is our Relate Strong Director, one of our hallmark programs at the Boone Center. And she is going to be sharing with you today based on her dissertation research. I have actually not heard Dee Dee give this presentation. So I personally am super excited <laughs> to hear from Dee Dee. Dee Dee is a woman who loves God and walks what she talks. She is a blessing to work with. And I know that she will bless you today as you hear from her. So welcome, Dee. Thank you. All right, like a like a teacher, can I move you guys up a little bit? Because my voice is is not as loud as it could be. I've been told. Um, and so I'd love. And then as we're moving forward, I'd love to hear a bit, little bit about who's in the room. So how many in this room are involved in pastoral ministry of some kind? Past, see, that's why we're moving up, because I have a low voice. Um, how many have been involved in pastoral ministry? Okay. Pastoring directly, like I'm a head pastor, executive pastor, okay? And uh, worship, we got some worship leaders in the room. That's an extra special place in ministry. And how about lay leadership, like elders? All right, we don't have any elders. Teachers, all good, because we're going to be talking about elders. No. Um, I'm glad that you guys are here. Uh, ministry leaders are uh, hold an incredible soft spot in my heart because the job of ministry is hard. I've been in ministry for more than 20 years, started in lay ministry, worked into women's ministry. Um, and if you're in ministry for a very long time, you experience some pain and some trauma and some difficult parts of ministry. So my hope is that the time that we have, I am going to be asking for some sharing because this is about your story. And here's what I know. I know that I know that I know that John 10.10 is for you. John 10 talks about the, past, uh, about the good shepherd. And in it, he says, I have come so that you may have life and life abundant. And I know that's meant for those of us that lead in ministry, too. But I think that that's a harder verse to live into in pastoral ministry because it's unique and has rivers, or has uh, lots of difficulties attached. All right, so let's go to the next slide because I want to talk about why, why I got involved in this research, what drew me to what I studied. Um, in my years of ministry, I got an opportunity to travel a lot and to meet a lot of great ministers. I got to meet Bill Hybels. I got to meet Ravi Zacharias. Um, I led a ministry at our church of 160 women. Uh, 
called Club 31, and it was based on Proverbs 31. And if we can get people in the Word of God, if we can get women into the Word of God, it's the Word of God that transforms life. Um, it isn't, you have a great speaker, but the Word of God literally does something to us internally and changes us. And so we built a ministry off of that that was thriving. And so I got an opportunity to travel with our key leaders because we were one of the biggest lay ministries at our church. Um, and in traveling, got to experience uh, a lot of the difficulties that happen within ministry. And our church was walked through a moral failure of one of our leaders. So as I journeyed in my own story of ministry and began to hear over the last few years of failure and fall, stories of the rise and fall of Mars Hill, I started to have a brokenness to what's happening to the bride of Christ. But something unique happened after Ravi Zacharias' story. Ravi Zacharias' story did something different to me because it made me start to look at the problem is not about the leader. We have a systemic problem within ministries and particularly surrounding pastors and their capacity to maintain their wellness, right? And so we're missing something as the body of Christ because unintentionally we have chosen leaders and said you get to be the head because we like, we like leaders that we can see that are big, that are charismatic, that are going to draw in numbers. Failing to recognize that we removed the pastor as a part of our body of Christ. Right? Anybody resonate? Does that resonate with anybody in this room? Where the expectations we began to put on pastors are different than shepherding. Right? And so it began to break my heart because as a leader fell, so did his family, and they fell alone. Their name and their family name. One of my closest friends, her dad was a pastor who fell, and their whole family had to move away and live in silence and secrecy and shame. So broke my heart. Again, the systemic failure and my love for the church started a mission of how can we begin to look at an untapped area of the leadership crisis that we're experiencing within the church. And so my larger work is on how do we support and equip governing boards to be better equipped to help our pastors stay healthy for a long haul. We're going to focus in this next 45 minutes, and I'm going to try to leave a few minutes at the end, on what do we do with pastor wellness? How does a board know what pastor wellness looks like? Wellness and flourishing and mental health, these are terms that we throw around really easily in the world that we live in, but what do they actually mean? And how can we begin to create systems that support and equip us as churches to have leaders that can be healthy? And I've been surprised by the reaction of my research. I mean, I've had wives of pastors begin to cry because they say thank you for seeing what our husbands are going through or, or their own selves, women in ministry that face unique struggles. How does that sound to you guys? Sound like we're fitting? 
Okay, good. You're in the right place. So let's go to the next. Okay, so I talked a little bit about this, this idea of flourishing and thriving and wellness. And what does that even look like? Like, how do we begin to define what wellness in ministry looks like? Because it seems like a moving target, right? Um, and we're going to lay a definition out for you. You can move to the next slide. Most of the research on flourishing, um, kind of a pioneer is Seligman. So Seligman, uh, Mary mentioned in her last talk, Vanderville, who also does a lot on suffering and pain. But these are six primary dimensions of flourishing. They're the dimensions of flourishing that I used in my research. Um, when I was asked why I used these, it's because they're easily applicable. So in everything that you see that I'm giving you, including this acronym that I've put on your, that I've given you as a handout, and if you don't have one, let me know, and we'll make sure you get one. We're going to be focusing on these six dimensions of flourishing. What do I need to flourish? What do I need to be well, right? I need a secure sense of integrity or identity. I need to know who I am in the world around me, right? That needs to be grounded foundationally on something bigger than me. But I need to be secure in it. I need a sense of safety in the world around me. I need to be able to have trust, know that the world around me is reliable. These two happen to be integral parts of the model of therapy that we use out of the Boone Center for the Family, which is called Restoration Therapy, founded by uh, Terry Hargrave. Sharon Hargrave was, uh, is, will be here tomorrow presenting with me a little more of that. But those are the two foundational core needs. Every single, they're bolded because every single uh, aspect of research that describes dimensions of flourishing includes these top two. Our identity and our safety have to be secure. When they are not, we fall into unhealthy ways of coping. And the next four actually could fit into these. It's why there's very ranges, but we need to have relationships. Relationships not just interacted. How many of you in pastoral ministry would say I'm surrounded by people all the time, but I am alone. Anybody have that experience? We're going to be talking about that. I need meaning and purpose. I need to be actively engaged or present. Um, and I need to have transcendent values. Character, virtue, faith. Right? Any questions on any of this so far? Or are we tracking? Okay, let's go to the next slide. What? He's not here? So I will. <laughs> okay. Are you going to give us an opportunity to access these slides or are they proprietary? No, absolutely. I'm happy to share. Um, maybe we'll just need to get your we'll emails. Get email address. We'll, yeah. we'll get your email addresses. Okay. So we talk a lot about wellness. Again, flourishing and wellness. And so one of the things that I created, you'll see a picture of it. Actually, we'll go to the next slide and then come back here. I created a continuum of wellness. Now, I have five copies of these if you guys want to take a copy with you. But this was part of my research that as we look at thriving and wellness, I want each of you to know that every day of the week we are somewhere on this continuum. We live in a mental health crisis world. And it's so easy for us to begin to think about our wellness 
outside of what would be normal. So I've broken it down into the six er uh, to five different areas of physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, and mental. But we start at thriving. We're going to find moments of our lives where we're thriving. We might be thriving in ministry. But how many of you think we can stay there all the time every day? We don't. A lot of the days we're just hitting normal, right? I'm just functioning and getting through my day. I'm doing okay. Sometimes I might hit vulnerable, right? And so we've factored these out. You can go back to the slide right before it if you would. And I put these pictures up there to give you a, a kind of an image. Our hope is, and my hope is, is we talk a little bit about what we're doing here today and how I might think about, am I okay? By the end of today, I want you leaving with, I feel like I have a better handle on knowing how I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis and how to measure how I'm doing in ministry on a day-to-day -day basis. And if I'm not okay, what can I start to do to get myself on a journey towards being okay and maybe thriving more than I don't thrive. And my hope is that you'll be able to catch yourself here. And at very, at very latest here because of the information that you're gonna get today, right? Because the reality is that if I go into work and my husband calls and says he lost his job, is that gonna impact where I am? on my wellness continuum. Leading a team of ministers at a big Christian school out in this area and being a part of the spiritual life team, learning how to care for my team, who in one year managed the loss of two alumni to a car accident, drunk driving, managed a fire that took away nine of our family's homes. Nine people lost their homes. Nine families lost their homes. And we were primary responders to that. The fires and all the displacement. And then the final hit to my spiritual life team was we had a incident where we lost a student because a drunk driver hit that student. So we lost a student to a drunk driver. But we also had the, the parent uh, who had been driving under the influence her child also came to the school. So we went from one in the morning supporting a child whose mother had taken the life of another child to supporting the family who had lost the child. What in seminary <laughs> equipped you for the trauma that you hold every single day as ministry leaders and worship leaders? So understanding that when my day got a call where I have to go to those two places, it's really important that I'm able to stop and say, hold up. I think my life's a little disrupted today. And there's some work that I need to do. Because I'm caring a lot. Does that make sense? So we're going to, I want you to be able to see this. It was really important to be able to see. And if you want that bigger sheet, that bigger sheet kind of lists, again, the goal of this was to equip <coughs> governing boards to say, how do I know when a pastor is well? 
was just up a couple of weeks ago doing a training in Arizona, and one of the pastors we were chatting with, and he said, I'm going to have to get a second job because the work that I'm doing in ministry isn't enough for me to provide for my family. Is that important for a board member to know that their pastor's having to get a second job to be able to support their calling in ministry? Right? The things you hold as pastors and ministers are huge, and there's been a silence surrounding it. And there's lots of talk about pastoral wellness and care. Um, but I want you equipped to know, if I need to be well, these are some areas that I need to begin to consider and make sure that I'm engaging so that I can sustain ministry for a long haul. So let's go to the next slide. Well, two slides. Um, let's talk about some of the unique obstacles within ministry. We've talked about one, grief, loss, and trauma. Unrealistic and inconsistent expectations. Anybody in the room feel like you are constantly missing the target in ministry somewhere? Anybody in this room had one sermon that got, hey, I didn't like what you said. Hey, I really loved what you said in emails the very next morning. Pandemic, how did the pandemic impact that? I love what you're doing. I hate what you're doing. I'm leaving relationships. Some of the unique traumas that we experienced. I happened to be with a group of pastors with Barna, 150 pastors. Barna put together this group of pastors called the Resilient Pastor Cohort. And standing with some of these pastors, they had built relationship with these families. Baptized kids, went to graduations, married children, and then the pandemic hit. And masks caused families to leave. No regard for the relationship that had been established and the trust that had been built. Some of that unique pain that we carry as ministry. Unique expectations. You should be able to handle that. You're okay that I don't want to be a part of your church anymore, right? Anybody experience those kind of pains in ministry? Yeah. And being able to hold that, so the unique, and, and expectations of the board. Boards have really great intentions mm -hmm. in supporting their ministry leaders. But in my experience in having conversations with ministry leaders, is that while on this hand, it's kind of like this. On this hand, you're saying, please take care of and invest in your relationships with your family. Please do that. But make sure you're available to families that have need in our ministries. Make sure you're on call when there's a trauma. These unexpected or unwritten expectations that get placed. And honestly, some of them we kind of carry as a burden for the image that we placed on what a pastor should be. Maybe the board hasn't even done that. But as I've stepped up and gone into ministry, I've idealized what it looks like to be a pastor. And I've kind of picked these things up from just little comments people have said along the way of what a good pastor is and decided to own those. And unwittingly, they have shaped how I define how I'm doing in the quiet moments of self-reflection where my mistakes communicate 
over and over and over and speak to my heart. Anybody have that voice that goes on in ministry? Right? So how do we do that? So mixed messages, unrealistic and inconsistent expectations. Um, we can talk about choosing charisma and not character, how we've lost character. I want big numbers in the church, right? And how success is measured within ministry, right? Which can be confusing. How many of you feel like you were adequately, adequately trained in seminary? What was missing? Throw out some ideas of what you think was missing that you wish somebody had told you. What are the, oh, I wish somebody had taught me about that. Come on, call them out. Uh, mediating conflict between church members. Mediating conflict between church members. Yeah. Navigating conflict, yeah? Mental health overall. Yeah. I don't think there's anybody that has talked about feeling satisfied about mental health um, and being equipped to navigate issues of mental health. What else? Throw up. Pandemic preparation. Oh, yeah. Pandemic preparation. We were doing some of the Relate Strong Pain and Peace Cycle training with a, a, a foster youth organization, and you always bring your spouse for free. So husband was a pastor, and he sat in the room, and we were just chatting. He was willing to do his Pain and Peace Cycle for us. And on the pain and peace cycle, he was talking about, I get in the room with my elders, and they all expect me to know what to do. And I haven't told them, I have no idea. I have no idea. And I was like, why? I don't know what they do if I say I don't know what to do. They all expect me to know what to do. And so we talked through a little bit of the pain that causes you to feel that way. Right? And his responsibility in saying, no, 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 my job is to say, hey, I need to know I have no idea. By the way, who prepares you for a global pandemic, right? So can we pray together collectively, right? We need to rethink. As ministers, I really want to encourage you to leave here rethinking what you have accepted as your responsibility as a pastor. And I, used to, I tell people as clients, I'm also a therapist, I tell people as clients that sometimes if you see me walking down the hall like this, sorry, I might hit things along the way too, but if you see me doing this, it's I've shaken off the expectation I have worn, either because I've taken it on myself as an expectation, or somebody has just thrown on me something that I'm supposed to do to meet their needs. And I'm just saying, no, 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 no. If I don't know what to do, my job is to be transparent and honest and say the collective, God has put us in this space in this time so that we can figure this out together. I may not know what to do, but I do believe that if we put ourselves together, we'll be able to do it. So I'm shaking off that expectation that I'm, as the pastor, have to have all the answers. Who said that anyway? Right? That's me stepping into the role of head. Head gets cut off. <laughs> Right? In ministry, our head is Jesus Christ in the church. And any time we begin to step into that space, we can't sustain it. Right? And as ministers, there's going to be a pressure to take hold of that because people like things that we can see as leaders. But your job is to take your role using your gifts as a part of the body. I love my pastor consistently from the front of our church will say, 
I'm one of the pastors here. And in having conversations with him on these topics, he says, no, 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 no. I'm not feeding this narrative about the lead pastor being the head of the church. I'm not feeding that dynamic. I'm keeping myself right here. And then a few times a year, he does a teaching that includes these words. Nothing I have isn't available to every one of you. The spiritual connection I have with God is because I do the work to get there. You can have the same. I'm called to be a shepherd of a, of a church. This is my calling. It's what I do. But in industry, you've been called to do the same and grow the same maturity. And your job is your own discipleship. So any connection, you don't need me to access the Lord. Jesus took that away. You can have a relationship with Jesus that leads and guides your life without me. We're trying to grow together in discipleship. And there's a difference, right? It's taking off that. And so all of these things create a deep loneliness within ministry that I have heard over and over and over again from pastors who say I have no safe place to go. Nobody can understand. There's no safe place for me to minister to. And there are some realities to that. Let's just name it. Like, I can't go tell my problems to the people in my congregation, right? Necessarily. Does everybody hold those things well? So I remember um, I've had a pastor not too long ago. We've been showing our materials and uh, getting some response. And so in my journeys with uh, pastors and Nashville and around the nation and California, uh, we have shown some of our, our materials. One of them was on pornography, and I had a pastor in, uh, communicate to me, you know, if I told anybody that I was struggling with the issue of pornography, I'd be fired. And yet we hold the statistic from Barna, 58% of pastors acknowledge a struggle with pornography at some times in their journey. 64% of youth pastors. So how do we hold both truths? Pastoral life can lead. One of the most dangerous things that I found in my research, and in fact, uh, I didn't think about it until my uh, dissertation prep on the committee said, what's the most surprising thing you found in your research? And I said it was the hiddenness. It came like that. That every failure involved a pastor getting caught up in hiddenness, that shame drove them deeper down, and it created a perfect climate for duplicity. <coughs> and decisions where I begin to need to cope because I can't carry, I've had no place to take my pain. And because I've had no place to share my pain, I begin to find ways to deal with the pain and cope. Pain doesn't go away silently. The pain that we carry within ministry, we take it somewhere or it takes us somewhere. Right? And so hiddenness destroys us from the inside out silently. And it captures and captivates. And so as people in ministry, it's important for us to, number one, be aware when we start to fall into things that draw us to hiddenness or duplicity, and that we have an answer to that, so that it doesn't overtake 
Shame's a powerful agent of destruction in our lives. Mary was just sharing about forgiveness and the impact of shame. Imagine the impact of shame in our own ability to accept forgiveness from Jesus, where we catastrophize sin, make our sins so big that even God can't forgive, right? And we play this game. And so as we step into, we're going to be working to, through this, but loneliness, shame, and hiddenness all feed duplicity. They start <coughs> helping us to create or, or creating perfect soil for us to begin to live into coping strategies that we need to keep hidden that bring shame. And so then we get more hidden. And then we don't know what to do. So let's talk about what do we do and how do we set ourselves up so that we can be protected in the work that we're called to as ministers. So you all, everybody have a card like this? Okay, and you'll notice the spheres of flourishing are all in here. We're going to talk about them. Let's go to the next. Okay. So this is what we have. Well, let's go here. Anybody watch Sesame Street growing up? Interesting, the change. How many remember the song, which one doesn't belong here, right? Um, and then you'd see something, then they moved it to be a little more correct to one of these things is not like the other, right? Belonging is really important. And this is where, as ministers, what are some of the unique, any of you want to share a unique challenge to feeling like you belong? I would say that um, in every social situation that's, that uh, involves church, I'm expected to be a leader or pre prepare for it or to show up as the person who has the answers, who's in charge. And I can't show up and just be myself as a Christian. Awesome. That's exactly right. So your role defines your belonging. So your belonging is the role, not your person. So finding a place where a person belongs is a unique challenge within ministry. When asked the question, sometimes I don't finish the, the story and then people come up and say, what happened with that pastor that said if I said something, you know, what, do you, what do you recommend I do? It's like, I hope you have a group of men or uh, advisors, therapists that support where you can be transparent. And maybe they're not in your church ministry. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have people in your ministry that you have a sacred confidence and trust with, but you need both. Who do I have outside and who do I have inside that can help me be able to sustain? Belonging really matters, right? Um, Brene Brown talks, it's the innate human desire to be part of something larger than us. The yearning is primal. And I think we as pastors and ministers fall into this category of fitting in, seeking approval, fulfilling our role, right? It gets especially confusing for us in ministry because we attach what God expects of us into how we think about this idea. But belonging is essential for flourishing anywhere. And I have to find places where I can meaningfully and authentically connect. Places where I can know another and be known by another 
and where I can exercise this idea of loving in spite of what I know about you and because of what I know about you. I think that's the most beautiful thing about marriage is that usness, that unity that we create in marriage. So pastors in your marriages, do you have a sense of connection where you can bring a whole self? And if you don't, we have a minister's marriage enrichment um, that you can sign up for will, will help you. And I say that in jest, but absolutely not in jest. These are designed so that you can find that place of connection in your marriage and create that as a foundational place of belonging <coughs> and connection and openness and honesty and transparency. And that, we, that you can begin to build other places of connection and intimacy with people within the church and outside of the church. Um, that you can take, all of us need a board of directors, I call it, um, that are friends that are about 10 years older than us because they're not in the drama of our current moment, right? They see a few years beyond the drama of our current moment and can speak wisdom that sees beyond the current moment to us and encouragement. So belonging is the first. Second, emotional regulation, right? Um, this is another big term. Y'all know what we talk about, what we mean when we talk about emotional regulation? So emotional regulation, really, if you think about it, Mark Brackett out of Yale um, has done a lot of research on emotional regulation. And he uses a term, an acronym, RULER. And ruler is, this is just how I can correctly identify and not give power to the emotion that's guiding me. Emotion's a really powerful agent in our life. And I think we can end on a spectrum of giving full power to emotions. Some of us experience that with people in the church. Or giving no power to emotions. And um, we can also fall to that, like this best thing for me to do is not have any emotional reaction at all. But emotions are meant to give you information about who you are, how you're experiencing the environment. It's where we build discernment. You know, Hebrews 5 talks about like part of this idea of growing to maturity and being ready for something more than spiritual milk is to... Uh, practice daily. It's by continual practice of discerning what is good and evil. And one of our primary ways of doing that is the emotional response that God has given us. Learning to trust and discern as we walk into moments. Right? So we can walk into a room and know immediately there's some tension here. It's good for me to be aware of that. We can walk into a board meeting and go, oh, am I on Am I good with the board or am I in trouble right now with the board? Where am I? I, I got to learn to cultivate and be able to listen and recognize. I also need to recognize that when I woke up and had a bad dream where my husband did something mean and I wake up, that even though I feel very strongly mad at him, <laughs> that that's not real in the moment, right? Because if I fail to act on that, I'm going to treat him. I'm going to be grouchy with him. Versus going up to him and said, you were such a jerk in my dream last night, sweetheart. Like, and I'm mad at you, but I'm not going to give it any power. So recognizing, learning uh, to express, hey, I have this. this. This is my reaction. Correctly labeling it, right? Um, understanding, that's actually 
recognize it, understand it, where it came from. Use the dream as an analogy. It's silly, but it, it'll work. I recognize I had a dream last night. My husband did something bad, and I'm mad at him. I understand it. It makes sense. I dreamt it. It felt real. Label it. It's actually insane for me to think that right now because he didn't do anything bad, right? Um, express it appropriately. And that's where I'm able to regulate. Regulation comes after I've been able to work through some things. And I think it's really easy when, in a world where we're talking about emotional regulation and how we get there. There is a process to getting there. I gotta understand the pain that drives my emotional reaction sometimes. And we all have triggers. Um, it's what we do at the Boone Center for the Family with the Relate Strong model is teach a pain and peace cycle that without our knowing it, our pain can tend to drive our responses. And it drives us to some favorite coping mechanisms minus control. Some of you might be angry, reactivity, but there's a cause for our reactions. And when we do that work to understand them, it's incredibly valuable and worthy. Let's go to the next one. Um, and I forgot the L, but I want to give you guys the L. Uh, the L is our life circumstance, okay? Just like in that wellness continuum, as you start to look at your wellness, am I expecting myself to function normally when I just found out something traumatic or tragic? Am I struggling to make ends meet and having to look for another job? Am I struggling in that area? Is my mom or, or dad's health failing and I'm needing to do a lot of care? Um, so giving yourself a kind of a check on life circumstance. Where am I in my life? Then jump to emotional regulation. The next is spiritual grounding. Um, I want to read to you. There's a phenomenal author. Her name is Flora Slauson Wolner. She's done a lot of spiritual formation work, particularly for leaders in ministry. I highly recommend this book. It's called Feed My Shepherds. And uh, she writes at the beginning, this is beginning of chapter one. In the middle of the funeral service I was leading, I suddenly realized I did not believe what I was saying. It had been a tragic and traumatic death, an 18-year-old boy, only child, college-bound that fall, enthusiastic member of our little Chicago church, killed in an auto accident while riding to a church camp where he was a summer counselor. I was speaking of the limitless love of God, the closeness of the comforter, the life eternal within God's heart, and as I looked at the faces of parents, our church members, his weeping school friends, and as I spoke, a grim realization grew within me that I didn't really believe what I was saying. God's love, closeness, power to comfort suddenly seemed dim and unreal. Obviously, I said nothing. It would have been cruel. I went on with the service, talked to the families about how I needed to comfort them. How had this loss of faith crept up on me without my even suspecting it? How real is that? I was talking to some worship leader friends of mine, and my daughter's a worship leader, and some of the hardest parts of that are the questions she has asked me before. How do I lead people into worship when I'm struggling with God right now? And you as pastors hold that same kind of tension, right? I remember a season when uh, I had gotten into ministry, and I was so excited to be a part of leading and teaching and using some of my gifts. 
And I realized that something switched. And all of a sudden, when I read the Bible, I could only read it to give it to other people. I stopped being able to read it to give it to myself. Anybody in here experience that at any time in ministry? And so I prayed, and I got my team together, and I said, I'm out. The end of this semester, I'm going to maintain my commitment, but I'm out. Because if I can't figure this out for me, I will become a mess trying to lead people in what God has for them if I'm not able to recognize and, and make sure I'm anchored. So when you look at this idea of spiritual grounding, it isn't a matter of if something jumps into that place of my heart that grounds me in God's love. It's when, right? For me, it was easy, like even as parenting, for my kids to take that highest place of motivation in my life. I lost my mom when I was young, so I carried this deep fear. And I watched my three-year-old sister grow up without a mom, trying to fill the gap. And so I was deeply afraid that God would take me from my kids. And so my kids, I have to constantly watch for when they take the place of Jesus in my heart, right? And so what's grounding you? Be mindful and ask yourself those questions. Am I grounded in the beliefs that I say I hold? Or am I having some of these moments where I'm up preaching and saying, there is a disconnect between my heart and my mind right now. Something broke. And I need to be aware of it so that I can do the work of fixing it. Right? Really important for you. And it's not if that happens to you as a minister. It's when you will have your own little stumbling blocks that keep finding their way in. Maybe it's approval. Maybe it's a level of success you thought you could reach. But something's going to take the place in your heart at some point. Can you catch it and create around you a sense of a group of people that can help you navigate it? Next, we'll talk about safety. Um, And this is both being aware of how people perceive you as much as it is a, uh, being aware of, am I safe in the space that I'm walking in? Safety is a really important part of evaluating your own wellness, right? Um, am I safe in this ministry? Am I feeling insecure? Has there been some tension with people? Has the pandemic impacted my sense of confidence, right? And writing this for a board, it's a, can you be aware of some of these issues so that you can help support and create safety and security for your pastor? But it's also a safety and security for those around. One of the most disturbing components of my research was reading the letters, the open letters from the board that talked about the damage that was done to the people who came forward. And the refusal to listen to the signs that were there that could have protected their pastor, right? And for us in ministry, or for me as a mom, or in ministry, when I walk into the house, because I usually see myself best in my own home, so when I walk into the house and I notice all members of my family are kind of moving away, (laughs) relationally, or shutting down and not engaged, That's a helpful sign. I'm actually not safe right now for the people around me. It's really important for me to be aware of that. When I walk into a room of team members and I'm getting ready to host a ministry meeting, is everybody in the room avoiding eye contact with me? 
Or have I created, is there something you need to address to create a sense of safety and openness to vulnerability in the room that I have with them? Just being mindful. The safety is looking both internally, do I feel safe? And I, I being a safe person for those around me. Make sense? Um, next slide is engagement. One of the ways that I can begin to look at, am I okay? Am I not okay? Is it, can I engage? Do I notice my presence? Being able to follow me. Do I have a place where I can exercise presence? I put this slide up there. How many of you find yourself when you're stressed? I'm telling you, like in our day and age, our first indicator that I'm not, not, I'm not present in a moment is when I start scrolling through social media. Right? Or I start answering my emails and I don't have the ability. I'm just looking for that email response to the email that I just hit send on. And I want to know how it's being received. So I can't separate this out. I'm going home and every, that's infecting. I can't be engaged. That's a huge indicator to me of how well I am. And whether I'm flourishing or whether I'm beginning to move down that continuum into vulnerable. I'm at risk here. I got a couple ways I could go. And our goal in this room and with this tool is to give you strategies and conversations, places that you can go to begin to say, where am I noticing? Do I see evidence? I'm sort of not feeling OK. Do I see evidence of that? Where do I see evidence of that? OK, now what do I do? Where where in this continuum am I being impacted? Because then I can know where I can step in. Some days I go home and I'm like, you know what? Today was one of those lemonade days. It's a day full of lemons. And it's okay if I spend 30 minutes scrolling through social media today. I can make that decision. Technology is not, not evil. But I got to know what I'm doing, right? Do you know the difference? Feel the difference? And what we're talking about? And then the last in our acronym, you like my blessed acronym? We're pastors. <laughs> so uh, the last one, other than presence and being aware of my engagement, next slide, is looking at discipleship. Okay. And discipleship's not just up, down, really the Paul Timothy model. Do I have a Paul in my life? Do I have a board of directors? This is that board of directors. But another area of flourishing is am I responsible for carrying this upward? And I think in churches, we often miss this one, right? I'm really grateful. I grew up, I have five brothers and two sisters. Um, my sisters are 10 and 14 years younger. Every once in a while, I still twitch. I'm just, it was survival of the fittest growing up in my litter. Um, <laughs> It was, it was, and here I am, grateful to tell it. But I can't tell you the role that I played as the oldest sibling. It changed me knowing I had the responsibility of paving a way. It was an important tool for me to keep me from doing things that I otherwise would have done if I didn't know I have somebody along for the ride. And what they see in me, they will do. And please don't hear me say discipleship and mentorship are about you. <laughs> That'd be distorting what I'm saying. 
But there's a measure of health and wellness in making sure we have both along for the ride. <coughs> that I'm submitted to somebody who I've given access. I have a group of friends we've been praying over a decade together. And this group of friends has the authority to tell me who I am. I've given them the right. They have always demonstrated a desire for me to be the best, best version of myself. And they're not afraid to tell me when I'm getting it wrong. But also people that I'm leaning down and saying, let me teach you and bring you up along the way. That I know I have a responsibility to guide and direct. And they, those two things help me be motivated when temptation comes. No, I got responsibility. Right? So uh, last slide as we get ready to close. Mauricio, where do we go from here? I just want to encourage you, like, begin where you are. What's in front of you? I have a good friend, Tim Kite, who leads a, leads a ministry, and he talks to, like, hold this 20 square feet that you're in. Oftentimes, our gaze gets so far beyond, we miss the, we miss the presence of the moment. Like, how am I doing right now? Because that's my job. My job is to hold well what I'm in. So how can I be aware of who I am and how I'm engaging the world around me? Find people. If you don't have people, find people. Um, and if you don't know, reach out to some other friends that you have, even while you're here at, at Harbor. Um, great opportunity to meet some people and create a cloud of witnesses that walk with you in the journey of your ministry. Acknowledge. Be willing to acknowledge the unique pains that are impacting your ability to flourish. Let's just name them. We can't change what we're not willing to name. So let's name some of the stories and, and begin to unpack, where do I see this on this tool? And what do I need to do work on? Am I disconnected? Am I living amidst 100 people and totally lonely if people really knew? Our research today, the research on attachment and connection, says that in 2004, 25% of the population felt like there was somebody in their life that they could tell their deepest secret to. Today, zero. Very few people, uh, wait, no, it's not zero that feel like nobody in the world feels like they have somebody to talk to, it, but it is less than 25% of people in the world feel like they have one person that can know about them. That's that's devastating. And when you begin to marry that with the statistics out there on mental health, depression, hopelessness, anxiety, it's overwhelming. Those, those truths are overwhelming. Um, so identify the areas that you need to focus on and begin to grow as you move forward. So is this helpful? Thank you so much for just taking an hour. You have so many choices at Harbor. So thank you for, so much for participating and being a part of the work that we're doing at the Boone Center for the Family. If you want access to the PowerPoint, please come up and I'll get your email address and I'll be happy to send it to you. Okay, so enjoy the rest of your time.